This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's October 28th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In his San Francisco home, Paul Pelosi, the husband of Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, was viciously attacked early this morning by a hammer-wielding man. There are lots of questions, including, to my mind, the police response described here by William Scott, chief of the San Francisco Police Department. Our officers observed Mr. Pelosi and the suspect both holding a hammer. The suspect pulled the hammer away from Mr. Pelosi and violently assaulted him with it. Our officers immediately tackled the suspect, disarmed him, took him into custody, requested emergency backup, and rendered medical aid. Not sure why, with officers present, the suspect was able to get blows in. Maybe it happened too quickly. But if they saw it, is it unreasonable to ask why they couldn't have stopped it? We will learn more, as police say they have body cameras of the attack. The assailant was reported by CNN to have posted conspiracy theories online. Mike Lindell, My Pillow videos. CNN and the AP also reporting, citing three sources each connected to the investigation, that the man was yelling, Where's Nancy? which is an exact echo of the chants of the January 6th marauders. I saw two prominent conservative commentators trying to blame Nancy Pelosi's policies for what happened, Leo Tyrell of Fox saying, this is because criminals think they could get away with it. It's a pretty comfortable assumption. It's also incorrect. Like I said, the assailant is in custody. He didn't get away with it. I'm not even saying the suspect is in custody. I'm saying the assailant is in custody because they caught the man swinging a hammer. Larry Elder, conservative commentator, former California gubernatorial candidate, said on Twitter, this was a hammer. Are the liberals going to be calling for hammer control? No, more like self-control. From advancing crazy theories, which are, of course, going to find purchase in the least well among us. This is why Jews are the number one targets of hate crimes, because anti-Semitism is rampant. This is why Asians were feeling the brunt of hate crimes at an unprecedented degree, and still are, because of crazed rhetoric. And the crazed anti-Nancy Pelosi rhetoric didn't put ideas into the warped mind of the attacker, didn't turn a normal person mad, but most likely, they gave a warped mind something to focus on. The San Francisco Chronicle has an article up about what we know about the attacker. Number one, he was tapped to be the best man in a 2013 nudist wedding at San Francisco City Hall. No, that is not number one, nor is his membership in the Green Party, which was two, or his status as a nudist activist, drawing the ire of a city council person named Scott Weiner. No, no, none of that's the most important thing. It was the fourth thing we know about him that is most salient, that he wrote bigoted screeds, that he had blogs which were filled with QAnon postings, that he engaged in madness that we hope stays on the page, but this time it didn't. What could be done? In all honesty, back to Larry Elder, Paul Pelosi has a chance to live 
because Elder can make that crack about hammer control. Guns are or were before the recent Supreme Court ruling, but still are fairly hard to get in San Francisco by deranged individuals even more so. Could be the only thing keeping Paul Pelosi alive. And to be clear, again, the rhetoric of the right and the rhetoric of the far right didn't kill Paul Pelosi, or as of this recording, may still yet kill Paul Pelosi. He did have emergency brain surgery. But extreme, unhinged, violent thoughts spread easily do give force and focus to dangerous people. And that is our reality, certainly Paul Pelosi's reality. On the show today, a topic related to the dissemination of thoughts perceived and actual, Elon Musk buys Twitter. I'll tell you who I turn to for guidance on this. But first, two small town dog catchers are called to deal with a troublesome animal that turns out to be a horrible monster. It's the new Audible series, Catchers. Director Ben Rock joins the actors Billy Gardell, you know him from Bob Hart's Abishola and Mike and Molly, and Horizon Guardiola, you know her from American Gods and The Get Down, and they all join me next on The Gist. It wasn't a dog. Key line from an episode of Catchers. The Catchers are dog catchers, but let me tell you, in the tradition of that's no moon and that's not a knife, it wasn't a dog, is a key line. The director, the writer of Catchers is Ben Rock, who has a long history in the horror genre. He was a production designer on the Blair Witch Project and worked on a bunch of the subsequent Blair Witch franchise projects. And the stars of this are Billy Gardell, you know him from Mike and Molly, and Bob Hart's Abishola. Also, Horizon Guardiola, who, if you don't know her, maybe you saw her in American Gods and the Get Down, you're going to. Her talent, I normally say jumps off the screen, but jumps off the earbuds. <laughs> Everyone, thank you for joining us on The Gist. Thanks for having oh, thank us. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. I'll start with you, Horizon. Have you ever done an audio-only project? Um, this is actually my second one, and it was kind of, it was interesting. It was like back-to-back audio projects and they're both horror uh-huh. um yeah the first one that i did uh was stephen king strawberry spring um that came out like around this time last year american gods isn't horror specifically but you know the creator of that dabbles in horror and then you were in that cheerleader uh show well it's not a cheerleader show it's a very yeah. dare me which is which has a lot of menace to it so yeah I, I, psychological thriller. yes is there something about you that seems i'm not gonna say creepy <laughs> but lends itself to a little bit of uh discontent among the audience disorientation maybe i don't know <laughs> i i mean i'm actually as as an actor i'm i'm glad that i'm in this bubble as opposed to what i i could be in which could be cookie cutter and that would that yeah. would kill me so i'm happy to be here <laughs> well you say tell me ben i'll throw this out about horizon she has this calm and for the genre you're talking about, that works well, right? If someone's just bubbly, you'd maybe have to work against this. But the calm before the storm helps the storm along a little, doesn't it? 
Well, uh, yeah, and definitely in this show, you know, we were looking for somebody who had kind of a strength, but also a vulnerability. There's, you know, a little bit of a backstory to the Blair character where, you know, her, she's recently lost her father and had to drop out of school. And she's kind of taken this job as a stopgap kind of a thing, but she has to rise to the occasion. And when you get to the last episode, she really, really rises to the occasion. And uh, and also she has to contrast with the Collins character played by Billy, you know, who's who's kind of a live wire and, and is, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I was always thinking Harry Dean Stanton and Repo Man. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely flinty. Definitely seen it all. And that helps with the uh, intergenerational interplay. But Billy, how would you see Collins? Uh, I, yeah, he's a guy that uh, might have had a few other dreams and they didn't end up right. So he's he hates his job. And he's one of those guys that, you know, he's going to do the right thing begrudgingly, which I really loved about him. Like, <laughs> oh, okay, I'll go save you. Like, you know, but I really enjoyed the idea that this guy was at the end of suffering a career that he didn't really like. And, and then he meets this young person who he's going to kind of uh, pass the mantle to. And in the middle of that, the chaos erupts. But in, in the end, he's a really fun guy because, again, he's going to begrudgingly do the right thing, but he just doesn't want to be bothered. And that was really, really fun to play, you know? Yeah. There's a line uh, in episode one where, you know, someone who's a dog catcher, we call this animal control, and he explodes that. He says, come on, we're just dog catchers. And you know what? It, it does a couple things. To me, it gives the character credibility. The audience identifies with that because I would say nine out of 10 of us will say, well, you got to call the dog catcher and then you'll catch yourself. And go, oh, oh, you know, animal control. But also reminds me of, remember, I think the first episode of Taxi, Judd Hirsch's character, Alex Rieger, and he kind of goes around the room and talks about everyone with all their dreams about how they're different things. This guy's a boxer. This guy's an actor. Me, I'm a taxi driver. And that's what Collins was saying. You know what? I'm a dog catcher and I know it. So that established the character right off the bat. I would agree. Yeah. And I, th I think he has a, uh, I think he has an aversion to flowery language too. I like, I think he likes to call it like he sees it. So I really enjoyed that too. Yeah. And Horizon, I don't think your character is necessarily like uber millennial, but there is a contrast, a generational contrast. Gen there, right? Z, very specifically. Oh, Gen Z. Yeah. 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 Um, I definitely think, I mean, personally listening back and even while we were, um, recording the chemistry between the two characters always had like this this humor like it it, almost, it it was like a best friend like big brother little sister kind of relationship and i think we just played into that really well and even though there's a generational gap it was really only with the tech stuff because when it came down to it they kind of did see eye to eye in a lot of ways. And um, I, th I thought that was really cool to be able to break the, the age gap and just really focus on two people that come from different backgrounds, but still like have this, this care for each other. Right. I guess if there's anything, I haven't thought about what could unite the generations. I don't know, the <laughs> sitcom friends, monsters, monsters, monsters from a different realm. That'd do it, right? <laughs> I, I, think, I think there's always a common thread through humanity, too. And I think Ben and Bob, they threaded the needle on that perfectly, you know? And uh, I, I think they found their common ground in 
the way they reacted and, and, and the decisions they made. And, and then there is the funny stuff where Collins is just clueless and she has to get him through, uh, you know, I'm, I'm surprised he could work a payphone. <laughs> and if you'd have seen Ben over here setting my computer up so I could do this last night, you could see that I was cast appropriately. I really was. Was this a pandemic project where you knew you were going, everyone was going to be at a remove and that worked for you? Uh, by the time we started recording, yes, uh, Bob and I, Bob DeRosa, my co-writer and I were, uh, were writing it. We, we'd been hired by uh, Audible to write it before the pandemic. And we were like working together in the same room together. And then the pandemic hit and suddenly we were working on Zoom and, and using Collaborator. By the time we went into production, it was like not even a discussion. Everybody had to be in their own, in their own booths. We were, we started recording like last uh, November, I believe. And, uh, and we finished up in February. So like the Omicron, uh, boost was happening right then. It was, it, it was killing us. Um, and the previous audio project I'd done was a thing called video palace. And we'd had all the actors in the same room, literally like, like if two people were in a scene together, they were in the room together. We blocked it almost like a TV show. And, uh, and with this, it was like a remove. We couldn't do that. So we had to kind of we had to we had to kind of create a way to do it, but it's amazing because you know, like for all of Billy and Horizon scenes together, and also uh, all of Horizon and Nikki Michaud's scenes, and a lot of a lot of the characters who were in combination, we were at least able to do simultaneous zooms, so they could perform off of each other, they could see each other on Zoom, they could at least hear each other's voices, and have you know, it wasn't recording in a vacuum. Question for either Billy or Horizon, whoever wants to take it, when you're interacting, acting in real life, even if your character is maybe off camera giving another actor something to play off of, I assume you're acting with your whole body and making eye contact. Do you do that with uh, an audio version or do you close your eyes and just react to the voice? I think I did a little bit of both, maybe. I don't know. It's it's um, it's like a moment thing. Um, definitely, like Ben said, being able to record at the same time with your co-star like helps a lot because I mean not pandemic projects are a pain in the ass but like this one was actually pretty seamless and fun because we actually got to feed off of each other and bounce off each other I think the only time I would close my eyes is if my character was doing something scary (laughs) where it felt like she would have to close her eyes, but I think my eyes are open for the most part, yeah. So the character's motivation might be to have their eyes closed or want to have their eyes closed, and then you would close their eyes. Although in real life, if she did yeah. close her eyes, she might stumble over something or not get run away effectively. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think I, well, I think that no matter what you're doing, whatever form of performing you're doing, whether it's green screen, whether you're in the scene together live somewhere, or whether you're doing what we were doing, to me, it's always trust and listen. Trust and listen. And if the other person's doing that, there's an immediate connection, which I think we had, me and Horizon. And so that became, I think actually because it was in the pandemic and we knew we were dealing with different studios and like that, you kind of had to do that even more. And I think we leaned into that. And I think that's why it's believable between the two of them. So Ben, if this were visual, if this were a movie or a TV show, which you've also done, tell me what the reveal of the monsters would be like. I imagine it'd be something like Jaws, you get little scary glimpses (laughs) of body parts. And then, I mean, you're a production designer. Give me an idea of what these not quite a dog, something from hell monsters might look like. 
they're big, they're strong. Uh, I think that probably the first time you'd really, really get a great look at it is uh, it's in, I believe, episode five when uh, Horizon's character Blair has to examine one inside a car and is like pulling the flaps over and it's lots of squishy sounds, <laughs> lots, of, lots of gross out. Um, and uh, and uh, th- that would probably be the first, I mean, that's uh, my, my, my true north is John Carpenter's The Thing. And, and I feel like, you know, think about John Carpenter's The Thing. There's that scene where Wilford Brimley is dissecting the, you know, the, the thing that they brought in from the Norwegian camp, you know, probably around the end-ish of the first act-ish. And uh, I feel like that's probably where you'd get your be- your first really good look at it. But there are other surprises that the monsters have, including, uh, I, I shouldn't spoil it too much, but a secondary, larger monster that uh that we don't really get a really good look at until you know basically we're going into the third act of our story right and so i don't know if either of you actors have ever done major green screen stuff where you had to wait maybe reacting to something that they kind of described or maybe gave you a sketch of what it would look like afterwards but uh so that's one question the follow-up is did they at least give you what the squishes would sound like so you could play off that? No. I, I have done green screen a couple times, and it's always a bit awkward. Do they really have you stare, stare at a tennis ball on a pole? Is that really done? Yeah. I mean, they'll kind of just give you eyeline and, like, describe what's going on. It's a crazy thing that we do, but, yeah, <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, no, we didn't. I don't think we had squishy sounds. I mean, Ben no, did a really, we, we did didn't a really have good job at, at um, narrating. It just got a little weird sounding when Ben was hungry for lunch. I don't think that had anything to do with the monsters. Yeah, all the sound design stuff happened, you know, uh, after all the voices were recorded. I mean, you did a good job making noises with your mouth, though. You were, you were helping. You're doing the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ben, ben did get into it a couple times. A combination between a Foley artist and Bobby McFerrin. <laughs> <laughs> ben, let me pitch this idea for your next horror movie. Attack of the Tennis Balls on Sticks. <laughs> everyone, everyone just thinks it's a special effect movie, but they're out to get us. <laughs> <laughs> they have little teeth. They go, yeah, and they just bite you. Horizon, do you think about this? What did your character look like? Does she look exactly like you? Um, no, no. Um, actually, I imagined her like super tomboy. I mean, I can be pretty tomboy, but I imagine her a little more tough um, with like long black hair, long brown hair. Um, I imagined her wearing flannels, um, (laughs) kind of like more plain looking. After we had cast you, we took uh, Bob DeRosa and I spoke to you and you told us that you actually had veterinary experience. Yes, that's true. A veterinary veteran. Really? What was that? Um, well, I always wanted to be a veterinarian, surprisingly. Um, I, um, through high school, I had done some internships and I'd actually operated on a dog before <laughs> I could, like remove the My gallbladder. Gosh. Um, yeah, no, I, and I grew up working with beasts, with horses pretty much my whole life. So I was like, I can do this. Wow. <laughs> kind of natural. Yeah. Yeah. Billy, what do you think Collins looked like? 
Uh, me, but worse. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> you know, he, he's just—he's a cat that's. Uh, you know, I think he's just frazzled around the edges and uh, probably doesn't hit that shave as often as he should, and his back hurts, and he's. You know, he's just a guy that's like, I, I think he's just a working class guy that's had some miles on him. And I think, uh, and I think he had that in his walk. I think he had that in his talk. And I think he had that in his reactions. So I, I did, I kind of just saw him as this dude that was like doing his best to not, to not show how weathered he was, but not really letting anybody know that. So, so I, I, I think he's an everyman, which is what I try to play. The name of the show is Catchers. It is out now on Audible. Ben Rock is co-writer, director. Billy Gardell and Horizon Guardiola are the stars. I recommend it. It's scary, fun, and it's a great character study all at the same time. Oh. Thank you all so Thank very you, much. Thank you, Mike, so much. Thanks for having us, man. Thank you. And now the spiel. Have you heard? The nerd freed the bird. Elon Musk has bought Twitter. And while the top question is, does this mean Donald Trump is getting his feedback? And while some preferred that remain interred, we'll have to wait some time to assess what's occurred. You know, I think that everyone should be able to tweet anything they want as long as they do it in rhyme. That will be at least one limitation on the biggest idiots. They're going to be able to rhyme. I mean, it's not like a anti-Semite or raging narcissist will be able to, oh, Kanye West. But still, even if they go the rhyme only way, I, I would say the board who oversees all rhymes has to be very flexible with rhythm and meter. But you know what's going to happen? The whole free verse is in poetry debate will rear its head and then we'll convene a free verse oversight board and free verse and free. That'll become bumper stickers and banners at country music concerts. So obvious how it plays out. But in all seriousness. We will have to wait to see what Elon does. Ben Collins, who covers the dystopia beat for NBC, has linked to a Washington Post story about a spate of racial slurs being posted since Musk took control of Twitter. But guess what? Musk didn't change any of the settings since he took control. The sentiment was there all along. And Musk, no idiot, knows that if Twitter devolves into 8chan or Stormfront, occasioning a great exodus, then he's just paid $44 billion to own, I don't know, parlor with a blue background. Musk announced, quote, Twitter will be forming a content moderation council with widely diverse viewpoints. No major content decisions or account restatements will happen before that council convenes. Worried Twitter users of the left doubt Musk's sincerity when he says he has a commitment to openness. They read openness as he's putting the welcome sign out for trolls. And yeah, a sewage lagoon is out in the open, and that is what they fear. I am not so sure. I doubt that he wants to ruin his site. I also doubt that were his new plaything to chase away the prominent leftish users it has, that it would be much of a useful toy to him. The antagonists of the left need the left in one place or they won't have fun, let's say, engaging with them. Now, I'm not so naive as to say that, don't worry, the market's going to regulate itself. Everyone will 
be kept within the bounds of respectable discourse just because of the logical incentives I've laid out. No, they're definitely going to have to have some monitoring and some rules. And I think Elon realizes this too. I mean, you just heard the tweet I quoted. The question is which moderation and how much of rules do you have? The aforementioned Ben Collins of NBC says, this moment is a flashing red light. He's worried. But Ben Collins' beat is literally called the dystopian beat. This is a definition with a wink. Ben might literally be the type to say we're literally living in hell, but literally, literally we're not. It's kind of a pose, a feint, an attitude, an in-group signal that makes me wonder how impartial an analyst he can be. I think Ben's a fine reporter, but all of his incentives are to see dystopia where status quopia might be closer to the truth. Then there's Brandy Zarodzny, like Ben, a skilled reporter for NBC in this space. She's also worried. I know this because in Ben's feed, Twitter feed, there is a Brandy tweet with her getting into a Twitter spat with Tim Pool. You know this guy? He's a conspiracy dude who has a very popular podcast. Listen, I don't need fighting with extreme Twitter characters from people I turn to for analysis of how real to take the threat of extreme Twitter characters. Brandy is getting clout and status for elevating her fight with a person she's covering. So I checked in on Kate Klonick, St. John's professor, who I trust. She wrote the definitive article on the Facebook content moderation board. She recommends following, and I would recommend her, but she recommends following Renee DiResta, who's a Stanford researcher. She's excellent. I liked her podcast appearances on Jordan Harbinger and Coleman Hughes and Sam Harris. She also recommended Kate Harbath and Scott Shapiro. I like those experts too. Here is Kate's TLDR of what could happen with Twitter in the near future. Best, nothing happens to obviously screw with elections, but crazies return and spread chaos and violence. Worst, bots plus crazies return. Fake stories tilt election outcomes. No one is there to put up the reactor shields. Okay, I take all of this seriously. I make no predictions. I jump to no conclusions. But I will say that right now, October 28th, I searched this morning, and it was just clear how bad an experience for me that Twitter has become. And I'm not citing the same reasons that most people cite, which are true. It amplifies the most extreme emotions. There's a total lack of subtlety or nuance. My big problem is I just don't think it reflects reality. Now, of course, all these trolls think that too, and their reality is not my reality, but I'll, I'll give you the recent example of my search. I search for Fetterman. You know my thoughts. My thoughts are something, you know, that are borne out by polls and markets and my eyes, that his debate performance was troubling and it could be very bad for Fetterman. So what did I want? I wanted informed smart opinions from other smart peoples to convince me, oh, it's not so bad, or it really is that bad, or just to point out angles I hadn't considered, or to show what the partisans are saying. Search Fetterman. Here are the responses. Well, lots of tweets from Fetterman, that's fair. Prominent Don Winslow, been on my show, great author, also a huge Trump antagonist and Democratic supporter. And his tweet was, every time they attack John Fetterman, just retweet this as a reply. And it's a tweet of Trump slurring. To me, that's whataboutism. George Takei from Star Trek. 
I'd rather hear a few slower, thoughtful words from John Fennerman than any of the ranting, twisted lies of Dr. Oz, wouldn't you? Okay, fine. Entitled to her opinion. It's the second thing they present to me. Then there's Jeff Tiedrick. Holy fucking shit, Herschel Walker is an incoherent hot fucking mess. Donald Trump can't string five words together without short-circuiting. Why the fuck is John Fetterman suddenly the media's favorite chew toy? I mean, there's an answer to that because he had a surprisingly bad debate performance. But again, it's like the third or fourth most important tweet they surfaced. And then there were CNN's Anna Navarro Cardenas. Fetterman's aware his auditory and processing issues as a result of a stroke. He could have refused to debate like some candidates have. Instead, he went out there and let voters see his challenges and healing process. Support him or not, that takes courage, humility, and honesty. I don't disagree with courage or humility. Uh, healing process assumes facts, not in evidence. It's a very optimistic framing. I'm not saying it's inaccurate. I'm saying that this Twitter search totally failed me, totally did not meet my needs. Uh, just opening any decent newspaper in America, and many still exist, would have so much better met my needs than Twitter. So you could say, oh, well, that's not what Twitter is for. Yeah, exactly. Twitter is not for surfacing good opinions, not esoteric opinions, not complex opinions, just like well-considered opinions from informed people. Twitter is only about surfacing fiery takes. Yeah, I guess, which is to say to me, it doesn't reflect reality. That conversation is not the conversation that Pennsylvanians or even smart political observers are having about what we just saw. My definition of reality isn't Fetterman is disqualified, but it's something like, what does his performance say for perceptions of Fetterman's qualifications? I got none of that. I got an algorithm that's defaulted to scorched earth. More leftist scorched earth in this case, maybe in most cases, maybe it has something to do with the people I follow or who I engage with, but it was useless. And balancing all that from a dumbass tweet from Breitbart, which is literally the first opinion that I saw countering the brave healing Fetterman performance, that doesn't help me at all. Right now, the people most pessimistic about where Twitter is headed are the people who Twitter was working out great for, Don Winslow, Anna Navarro Cardenas, and some guy named Jeff. And sure, Twitter can get a lot worse, but there's also room for it to get a lot better. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist in an assistant capacity. Who does he assist? All of us, spiritually, emotionally, but actually, literally, 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 Joel Patterson, senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. We landed her. It was quite a coup. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. My Twitter handle is P-E-S-C-A-M-I. I'm going to be on there for at least a day. No, I'll probably be on there for a few days. And remember, say hi or say oom peru, peru, du peru, and thanks for listening.